Our text for this morning comes from Galatians chapter 4, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 1. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together as your people this morning, for preserving this portion of your word down to this very day. We know that there are many things in this passage, Lord, that even on the surface are complex and difficult to understand. We pray that by your spirit, you would give us understanding that you would help us to see how it applies to our lives, that you would equip us by that same spirit to live as your freed people through Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in 2016, the Religious Freedom and Business Foundation funded a study through Georgetown University. And the purpose of this study was to research the annual socioeconomic value of religion in the United States. And what they discovered through this study is that religion contributes about $1.2 trillion to the United States economy. This includes faith-based charities, it includes faith-based healthcare systems, schools, congregations, individual contributions, and even faith-based or faith-inspired businesses. $1.2 trillion. I mean, just to put that in perspective, that is equivalent to the world's 15th largest national economy and it surpasses the global annual revenue of the world's top 10 tech companies. That's including Apple and Amazon and Google. Religion is very big business. 
Don't be fooled, though. It's not just our traditional understandings of religion that are big business. I mean, even in the secular world, religious texts are raking it in week after week with books and programs and seminars and conferences that promise to bring you the life that you have always wanted for yourself. I mean, just, just consider this week's top 20 Amazon books. Coming in at number two, Atomic Habits by James Clear. The subtitle, An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones. Or coming in at number four, The Subtle Art of Not Caring. Now, the actual title to this book is a lot more colorful than that. It's by Mark Manson. You can look it up yourself. The subtitle is, A Counterintuitive Approach to Living a Good Life. And probably the most famous of these top 20 comes in at number nine this week, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. He subtitles this an antidote for chaos. Now we may not see the connection right away, but this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is observing at the top of our passage this morning. In verse 21, he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, you see, the word here that's translated under, it doesn't mean to obey God's law. That's something that Paul sees as a good thing when understood properly. What this word means is to submit to the law's power, to let the law reign over us, to control and to define our lives. Simply put, living under the law means to rely on the law. Whether that law comes from Jordan Peterson or whether that law comes from God's word in the Old Testament. And what's true about Paul's observation is that our hearts, the human heart, wants to rely on some kind of law for righteousness and for goodness. And this, this helps us, I think, understand why the Galatians were so easily led astray. You see, the, the false teachers who infiltrated the Galatian churches, they were selling religion to Christians. They were teaching that faith in Jesus was good, but that in order to be really a Christian, to be truly saved and to belong to God's people, you needed to adopt Jewish practices. You needed to rely on the law of the Old Testament. And here's the thing. The Galatians bought this teaching not because they lacked intelligence. They bought this teaching because their hearts, when they were not rooted in the gospel, wanted this works righteousness to be true. We are just like our brothers and sisters in Galatia. We might not have Judaizers knocking on our church doors, but make no mistake, your world, our world, is full of religious products ready to give us laws to rely on. And the truth is, not only do your hearts want to rely on those laws for righteousness, but as the study shows, we're willing to pay for it. Unfortunately, the cost of relying on the law is even greater than $1.2 trillion. As Paul is going to show us in our text this morning, the cost of relying on the law for righteousness comes at the cost of spiritual life itself. And so what Paul wants to do is he wants to help us understand how we can avoid, to pardon the pun, avoid such devastating buyer's remorse. Paul answers this question again in, chapter, or in verse 21. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? 
You see, when we actually listen to God's word, we see the foolishness of relying on the law. Because from the very beginning, as we're going to see in our passage this morning, God's word has demonstrated over and over and over again that our righteousness before God is not achieved by keeping God's law. It is received through faith alone in God's promises. And so what Paul is doing in this passage is he is turning to the Galatians and he's saying, let's go deeper into God's word so that we can see for ourselves whether or not God's story teaches us that righteousness comes through keeping the law. Let's actually dig deeper into God's word and realize how utterly foolish this is. And so here's what he does. He takes the Galatians deeper into God's word and he does that first by looking at a story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. I want you to notice what he does here in verses 22 and 23. He summarizes a story that we find in Genesis. But if we're really going to appreciate this story, we need more than just a summary, because here's what he says. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So just a little refresher. I'll try to be brief. Okay, you remember in Genesis chapter 12 and in Genesis chapter 15, God came to Abraham and promised that he would provide Abraham with an heir to live in the land that God would show him. Now, we all remember this, that when God came to Abraham and made him this promise of an heir, Abraham and Sarah were old. And not only had Sarah been barren up to this point in their marriage, but that she was well beyond childbearing years. And so hearing God's promise that he was going to provide them an heir to this land that he was going to show them, Sarah, in Genesis 16, goes to Abraham and says, you know, I'm clearly beyond childbearing years, so why don't you sleep with my maidservant, Hagar? And here was the idea, right? Sarah and Abraham would build their family through Hagar. Abraham listens to Sarah. He agrees. Hagar conceives, and a son is born to Abraham. That son's name is Ishmael. And in this part of Abraham's life, what is being shown is that Abraham decided not to wait on God's supernatural actions to bring him his son. Instead, Abraham was deciding to rely on his own strength, his own capabilities, Hagar's own strength, Hagar's own capabilities to achieve God's blessing. And then Abraham actually goes to God in Genesis 17. And he turns to the Lord and he says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, what Abraham is saying is, look, God, look what I have done to accomplish what you required for blessing, an heir. And in verse 19 of Genesis chapter 17, God responds to Abraham and says, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And even though, as we all know the story, even though Sarah would laugh at this idea, 
In Genesis 21, 25 years after receiving God's promise, Sarah and Abraham, through natural means, would supernaturally receive their son Isaac by faith alone in God's promise. That's the story. This is why Paul says in verse 22, it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But here's the thing. Abraham's two sons, while both related to Abraham, related to God in distinctly different ways. Paul notices this in verse 23. He says, the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. And if we just stopped here, we'd all be left scratching our heads, asking ourselves, who cares? What does this have to do with me? Why are you telling me about Abraham's family dynamics? And this is where Paul turns it up a notch, and he says, if you really understand the meaning of this story in Genesis, it will radically change how you approach the Christian life. He wants us not just to understand Abraham's family dynamics, he wants us to understand the meaning of Abraham's story. And so what he does is he says, now this, this story may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Now, we're just going to take a split second here because so much ink has been spilt over this portion of Galatians, and they all revolve around this word that is translated allegory. Okay, what, what does Paul mean when he says we should look to the Old Testament and we should have the freedom to interpret this allegorically? Well, it's important to understand a few things as we dive into the meaning of this story. The first is that the Greek word here that's translated allegory it just means figuratively, and that it's important to understand that at different points in history, people have meant different things by the word figurative or allegorical. Okay, so let's give some examples. Okay, if you go to the Middle Ages, okay, the Roman Catholic Church put forth a way of reading scripture that encouraged four different ways of interpreting a Bible passage. So there was the literal reading, literally, what does the text say, historically speaking? The second way of reading it is called typological, meaning how does this Old Testament text kind of echo the New Testament, and how does this New Testament text echo the Old Testament? We've got the moral reading, that's number three, is like, what's the moral of this story that we can take away and kind of do in our own lives? And then the anagogical reading, basically saying, what kind of church history examples are we seeing play out in this Old Testament or New Testament passage? So that's one example of how people throughout church history have said, we can interpret this allegorically, we can look for various meanings. Another way that this is, is happening even today in more liberal Christian churches or among liberal Christians, so-called Christians, is to deny the historical aspect of what's going on and just look for spiritual or timeless truths. You go into the Old Testament, you go into the New Testament, not really looking for what God's word says, but just trying to figure out how you can hear your own thoughts echoed back to you. And you, you can see how these understandings of figurative would bring about a million different interpretations. And this is why so much ink has been spilt about this passage, is because there has been so many examples of people going to a passage and making it say whatever they want. 
We don't get to make the Bible say whatever we want it to say. When we approach scripture, we need to approach it according to its proper literary genre, so history, poetry, prophecy, and we always need to be looking for the single meaning. What did the original author intend for us to understand by this particular passage? And what Paul is doing is he is saying, I see Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar's story as both historical, historically accurate, and filled with meaning for our contemporary lives. So how do we understand this word allegorical or figuratively? Here's what Paul is doing. He is making a really important observation that really does change the way you read, especially the Old Testament. What he is saying is that God's word is one unified story, and that God's one unified story has one purpose, to reveal Christ. And so the Old Testament is always looking forward. It's always longing forward to Christ coming. And the New Testament is always looking back. It's always rejoicing in or reflecting on the work of Christ that has been accomplished for us in history. And what Paul is saying is, under God's providential care, this historical story, it tends to repeat itself. The same characters show up in every generation, kind of playing out these same stories. And this is why Paul goes into depth about these two women who represent two covenants. We have Hagar, who represents the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the law given at Mount Sinai. Okay, and he says that corresponds with present-day Jerusalem. This is for the Galatians to say Judaism in the first century. This covenant of Moses is represented by Jerusalem's attempt to gain God's favor through their actions and keeping the law. And then the second covenant, the new covenant in Christ, he says, that's Sarah. He, she represents the new covenant, a covenant that's pointing to Mount Zion, the, not the law, the spirit being at work. And that's why he associates this not with Jerusalem in the first century, but he calls it Jerusalem that is from above. It's another way of talking about the fruition, the fulfillment of God's kingdom. Here's his point. Okay, we can get into the weeds all we want. There are Ishmaels and there are Isaacs in every generation. Ishmaels represent those whose lives are defined by the flesh. That is their human effort. These people relate to God through religion, through their work, so that they might gain God's favor. And every generation is full of Isaacs, those whose life are defined by the Spirit, by faith alone, who relate to God not through religion, but through Christ alone. This is what Paul is saying in verses 28, 29, and 31. If you look down there, he says, you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. And in verse 31, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Here's what I want you to notice. Paul is not describing Ishmael and Isaac to get us to figure out how we can be like Isaac or how we can avoid being like Ishmael. What Paul is doing is he's applying the story to our lives so that we would understand through faith in Christ 
who we are. That we are children of promise. It's, it's kind of like when you go to Facebook and you take a Disney character quiz. Have you guys ever seen these quizzes before? Right? You come to this quiz and it, and it doesn't give you a list of character traits about a particular Disney character and you go, wow, I need to be more like Jafar or I need to be more like Aladdin or I need to be more like Lightning McQueen. Right? These quizzes, the way that they work is they ask you a series of questions about your life and about your thought process and about your experiences and then it generates for you the character that you are. And I did this at Disneyland one time and I got Lightning McQueen, which I thought was kind of fun, you know. The point of this is not, again, to tell you who you should be like. It is trying to reveal who you are. And here's Paul's point. This story of Ishmael and Isaac in the Old Testament, it is meant to be applied to our lives by asking us, who are we in the story? The reason that we are tempted to buy religious products when we see them is because when we experience the reality of sin in our lives, even though in our heads we know that we are children of promise, that we are saved through faith alone, deep down, you and I know we don't deserve God's blessing. We have nothing to offer God. Why would God give us the blessing instead of Ishmael, the religious? And to those who feel like they just can't belong to God, to those who seem that every time they try and try harder, they continue to fail, to those people who can't help themselves, Paul preaches the gospel through Isaiah 54. He says, for it is written in verse 27, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Christianity is not about achieving the perfect life through our religious efforts. Christianity is about receiving the perfect life through faith in Christ alone. Paul goes even deeper than this. He says this story actually applies even more to your life, Galatians, than maybe you recognize. He picks this up in verses 28 through 31, and he says not only when we actually listen to God's law, to the Torah, will we see that righteousness doesn't come by keeping the law, it comes through faith alone. We'll actually see not just our lives played out in God's story, but we'll actually see God's story playing out in our lives. I want you to notice what he says in verse 29. He says, but just as at the time he, that is Ishmael, who was born according to the flesh, human effort, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, that's Isaac. Then he says, so also it is right now. Paul is making a connection between Isaac's experience in Genesis with the Galatians' experience in the present with these false teachers, and subsequently our experience in our Christian lives today. To illustrate this, what, what Paul is wanting the Galatians to do is effectively learn how to read the Bible like a Renaissance painting 
learns to read the Bible. And if you guys have spent any time in museums and look at, looks at, you know, um, sacred paintings from the Renaissance era, you'll notice that they're all wearing the wrong clothes, okay? What I mean by that is if you go to a Renaissance painting and you see that it's of a biblical narrative, right? The, the account of the flood and Noah or the account of, you know, Jesus' crucifixion, they don't look like people who lived in the first century. They're dressed like people from the Renaissance era. The point here is we are not different from these people in Scripture. We might have different technology. Our fashion might look different. We are exactly the same kinds of people. We need to learn to read the Bible like we see a Renaissance painting. And here's what Paul says. When we look at the story of Ishmael and Isaac, especially Isaac's experience as a child of promise, we will know what to expect in our Christian lives. And the first thing that Paul says that we can expect in our Christian lives is persecution. I want you to look, right? He says, just at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. So Paul picks up this narrative in Genesis and he keeps going and goes to Genesis chapter 21. It says in Genesis chapter 21, when Isaac grew and was weaned, Abraham made a great feast on that day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, that is Ishmael, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Okay, in the Old Testament, this Hebrew word that's translated laughing, it doesn't mean like, hey, we're all having a great time at this party. It means mocking. Ishmael, at the sight of watching Isaac, the child of promise, watching him take his place as an heir to God's spiritual blessings. It did not fill Ishmael with joy. It filled him with contempt. It filled him with hatred. The son whose life was defined by achievement was now being defined by persecuting the son. Persecuting the son whose life was defined by faith alone. Paul says that's happening right now, Galatians, in your generation. And there's plenty of historical evidence to prove that Jews in the first century persecuted Christians. The chief example of this would be Paul himself going from town to town, ripping Christians out of their homes and putting them to death. But Paul actually has a more specific point here than that. What Paul is saying is the marketing of religion to the Galatians by the false teachers is a sort of persecution. That these false teachers are seeking to infiltrate this Christian community and attempting to thwart God's work in his people. And just as this took place in the life of Isaac, just as this took place in the life of the Galatians, we should expect that in our lives as well. For the gospel work in our lives to be questioned and to be persecuted. It's important to understand that Galatians did not experience this like persecution in the ways that we normally think about it. It reminds us that what we said at the top of the sermon needs to really, really hold true as we experience Christianity during the week. Religious marketing is not neutral. This view of persecution, it radically changes the way that you think about religious products. 
Not all Christian products are created equal, church. Some Christian products will point you to Christ alone. Most will not. Most Christian products will use God's word in order to sell you on a religious ideal. Most Christian products are aimed at thwarting God's work in our lives. They're aimed at convincing us to live like Ishmael, to to believe that that being an heir means we must keep some kind of law. $1.2 trillion is being spent every year. There's a lot of marketing in that. I think this is especially important for those of us who self-identify as conservative Christians in the United States. But here's the wonderful thing that Paul is revealing. If we see the story of Ishmael and the story of Isaac playing out in our lives, we can actually stand firm against this. If we know that sons of promise come through faith in Christ alone, that those people are guaranteed eternal blessing and righteousness, we can follow the commands of this particular passage. We can know that we have a secure salvation. So are you being discipled by an algorithm and your newsfeed, or are you being discipled by God's word? What does the scripture say, Paul says in verse 30? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Paul, this last moment in the passage, is picking up the end of the narrative in Genesis chapter 21. And at the end of the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, Sarah calls for Abraham to get rid of Hagar and to get rid of Ishmael for the sake of protecting the internal inheritance of Isaac. And in Genesis 21, verse 10, God agrees with Sarah and calls Abraham to push out Hagar, to push out Ishmael, so that it would be clear to everybody, eternal promises are for the children of promise. No matter how zealous religious people seem to be, no matter how shrewd they are in their marketing, our future through faith in Christ is secure. It's not through religious effort, but through faith alone that we receive forgiveness and life everlasting. And so, as we turn to the end of this passage, may I just encourage you, stop looking for religious silver bullets to make you a better person. You don't need another book. You don't need another podcast. You don't need another seminar or another conference. You need Christ. You need Christ and his perfect life, his atoning death, and his bodily resurrection. And we can know with confidence from God's holy and historical word that he gives Christ freely to us by his grace, not by our work, but through faith alone. And it's when we see this and savor this more and more clearly, when we root our hearts in the gospel and in God's 
clear and authoritative word that we will actually, to maybe go take us back to Facebook, when we see those ads, we will click on it and say, this ad is irrelevant to me. I don't want to see it anymore. When we see ourselves in the story of God's word, and when we see God's word playing out in our own lives, we can have confidence. We can stand firm and not submit to the yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the warnings that you give us in your word about our real lives, about what's at stake spiritually in the mundane moments of our week. Help us, Holy Spirit, to see your word playing out in our lives. Move our hearts to turn our eyes to Christ at each and every moment so that we might know that through him and through faith in him alone, you have given us irrevocable, eternal promises. Promises to be co-heirs with Christ, to receive all that we need, the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of life everlasting. And it's in Jesus' name that we thank you and praise you. Amen.